0: Nevertheless, I think it's health span lifespan. How do we really put more quality of living in a health span as opposed to the quantity, the number of years? And I think there's almost this badge that says they live to be X number years. And it's like, well, how many of those years, especially at the end, were they living what they would call a quality of living experience?
1: Run, All right, so today I am super excited to be talking with a trailblazer in the field of senior care and daily living, who is literally changing the game for elders and their families. Susan Ryan is CEO of The Greenhouse Project, a not-for-profit organization with the mission of leading the transformation of traditional institutional long-term and post-acute care by creating homes that demonstrate meaningful satisfying lives, work, and relationships. That's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to have a great conversation. Susan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Michelle. It's such an honor. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. As am I. Um, So let's launch right into it. And uh, first, I, I think it would be great for you to just talk to us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today as ceo of greenhouse project uh we had a pre call and i found it a really fascinating and interesting uh your your personal journey yeah you know everybody does
0: have a personal journey that kind of takes them into the space and places where they find themselves in their career and mine really started in nursing and i can tell you that i was an ambitious nurse i decided that elder care was kind of where I want it to be. I would say likely because of a grandfather that played such an important part in my life. He was the patriarch of the family. I had such admiration for him. I was one of 40 grandchildren, if you can imagine. Um, He had 11 children. And the interesting thing about my grandfather is that his wife died when the youngest was 18 months. And he would raise all 11 children into adulthood before he remarried. And the values and the sense of family, the independence, everything that I saw in him just evoked such character, such admiration from me to him, of all of us. I mean, it was, he was pop and he was everything that I just thought elderhood growing older with me, that sense of resilience. And so from there, that really shaped my decision to go into elder care. And I remember early in my career, one of my jobs was a director of nursing in a nursing home. And I loved the elders. I loved their stories. I loved engaging with their families and seeing their grandchildren. And to me, I just had a nursing home full of grandparents. And so the those values that I, I believe that were so important to growing older became values that I really tried to infuse into the culture in, in which we worked. But the reality is the culture in which I worked, or shall I say the industry of which I was a part, best practices at the time were tying people up they were restraints to keep people from falling and so it was always said well we were penalized you know if somebody fell on your watch or directors of nursing when you thought about certainly the uh, survey process and different things it was really incumbent upon us to take those drastic measures to keep people safe and so i remember my call to action moment happened When we had somebody, a a beautiful older woman, she was living with dementia and she sure didn't look like she was feeble or frail by any stretch. And she would try to leave the building every chance she could. Mm. And every chance she could, she would go out there. We'd bring her back. And over time she became restrained. Mm. Over time uh, she was tied to her bed. She crawled out of the bed. She was restrained with uh, chemical restraints, you know, psychotropic drugs. And the next thing you know, she fell, broke her hip, went to the hospital, came back with um, wounds. And let's just say it did not end well for her. Uh-huh. And I I knew then this something was going awry with who I was at my core and what I expected to infuse into the culture that would really engender life with purpose and quality of living experiences. And so I accepted a job as a nurse, um, a geriatric nurse educator to keep people out of nursing homes. And as long as the grant funded it, I was a geriatric nurse educator, endeavoring to do everything that I could to create programs, health screenings, all sorts of infrastructure for people living in their own homes and to keep them there, to keep them healthy, to keep them engaged in community and engaged in life. So the grant ended, but I did not go back to long-term care for a long time. I stayed in home care and really worked with um, private agencies, home care agencies. i worked with Medicare funded agencies and um, did everything I could once again to keep people well supported in their home. And it was in 2001, that I decided home care is lovely. It's wonderful. I still believe um, passionately about it, but I will tell you it can be cost prohibitive and it can be socially isolating. Mm -hmm. If you've got the mechanism to pay privately to bring all the support in, good for you. Um, But it can also be socially isolating. So it just did not offer the myriad of solutions and options that I thought were really engendering that quality of life experience that is so important to growing older. So in 2008, I'm working from 2001 to 2008, working with an organization and really endeavoring to do everything I could to reform nursing homes. What, Mm -hmm. What will we do? And really looking to see what's out there. And I heard about this thing in 2005 called the Greenhouse Project, Hmm. and this little place in Tupelo, Mississippi, I don't think (laughs) I'd ever heard of Tupelo, Mississippi until then, and decided that we needed to go see the home of the first greenhouse community, and I guess you could say the rest is history. We saw it. I saw home care, long-term care coming together so beautifully. I said, this is it. This is the way it should be, And so I thought our organization would wholesale take it on. They didn't wholesale take it on. We did take some of the principles that seemed to resonate with us. But in 2008, I got an offer to join the Greenhouse Project team. And it's been my honor and pleasure to be here for the last 15 years.
1: That to me is just an amazing, incredible story that I wanted you to to talk to people about. some of the learnings are the things that we'll talk about. Now, a little bit later, I do want to really get into the greenhouse, but can you just kind of give us a foundational, you know, uh, talking points or cliff notes as to what Greenhouse Project is? Sure, well, it's a radical departure from
0: the traditional institutions is what I will call them, or. Even some call them facilities. Nobody wants to live in a facility nor an institution. So it's really creating a real home, not a home-like environment, but a real home. So real homes are small Um, in the greenhouse home. No more than 12 people would live in a greenhouse home. Each person has their own private room and their ensuite bathroom shower. And so they've got all of their, their needs, able to be contained, have that privacy, that dignity there. It's an open concept home. I don't know about you, but I'm a huge HDTV fan and I love (laughs) the, the open concept. And when I walked into a greenhouse home, I'm like, yeah, this is open concept. It's the open kitchen. The floor plan is such that, you know, you see the living room, you see the dining room. It's one long table that you or I would have in our own home it is uh, that kitchen is accessible 24/7 so it's a real kitchen where meals are prepared for those that live there the thing to me that's really cool is that access to outside a real home for me i've got to be able to get outside and so in the greenhouse home elders are able to get outside there are gardens in the back and you know little wandering paths where they're able to just experience normalcy So that's the real home. But I think the other thing that's so important is what's the culture that will fill that home. Hopefully you're not going to be operating that home as a traditional nursing home. And I can tell you that can happen. You can certainly bring those institutional paradigms, those systems and structures and the thinking into that pristine environment and not so here, that it really is shifting the paradigm to make sure meaningful life happens for those that live there. And last but not least, it's really all about the workforce and Mm -hmm. it's an empowered workforce and really sharing power and decision-making with those working closest to the elders so that they are able to engender that meaningful life, that purposeful living for those that are there.
1: So that was probably a longer cliff notes than you expected, but that, oh, that's, a, that's a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. I think you're painting an amazing picture of of what, um, you know, people like me even. Right. We're getting we're getting older. One day we will be elder. And, you know, I've always said I want to be in my home or, you know, it's time for me to go. I've told my children that they're like, Mom, I'm like, yeah. And then when my one daughter said. But well, you can always live with me in my basement. I said, uh, no, all <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, You know, she was 10 when she told me that. Um, and it's because I actually do have a mom who lives with us. Um, you know, you've been at greenhouse project for about 15 years now, I think. Right. Right. And what would you say through that time would be some of the biggest challenges as a CEO that you're facing in like, it, the, I've seen the concept expand. I've seen what your footprint looks like. But what would you say are some of the biggest challenges and hurdles that you face? Because like, you know, you look at the, in my opinion, it's what should be dominant, the dominant choice out there. It's an interesting question, and I can tell you when I first joined Greenhouse,
0: I thought exactly as you just stated, I thought, well, in no time, we will have transitioned all those nursing homes into small house homes. So I'm going to say probably the first thing that often doesn't get talked about and that's ageism Mm -hmm. because I think ageism and having those biases, um, what we value gets funded. And Mm -hmm. so we really don't have, even in the wake of COVID where nursing homes got hurt so badly, um, they performed horribly. I, you know, the, the funds were there to prop them up, but nothing really to say, we've got to fix a broken system. And so ageism, I think, is a big part of it. I think
1: mm.
0: um, by far it's underfunded. And I just think that, yeah, we just think it's, it's good enough. And that's the next thing that I would say, it's complacency with the status quo, it's it's good enough. Mm. And again, I would argue COVID has shown us that it's not good enough, not by any stretch. And so hopefully we will awaken out of the complacency and not try to get back to the status quo. So those are probably the biggest, I would say um, regulatory hurdles, that Mm. there are a lot of regulatory hurdles. For example, in the state of Maryland, in which I am, um, in order to build something innovative, new like this, I need to get a certificate of need for beds. And that's a barrier. I've got to prove that there is a need to build um, new nursing home beds, create new nursing home beds. Well, when census occupancy is in the mid 70s in the state, it does not demonstrate that there's a need. They're saying there are beds available. And so it is stifling the innovative process. Um, Gaining access to capital um, or perhaps land sometimes. And I think certainly fueled by COVID, but early in in my tenure, we hit the recession. And so the, the terms for financing, they were tough. And so many people weren't able to take on a new build project Mm -hmm. and greenhouse is, I would say 99% are pretty much a a new construction and and they're starting from scratch. So gaining access to land, getting um, capital financing, that is really good terms that uh, work for them. And then, you know, the reimbursement rates, um, they vary state by state. And so to really make it viable and to make it work, oftentimes, you know, to go the distance here, it um if Medicaid rates are low and they have a high Medicaid as a payer, then it's not going to get built. So those are largely the the ones that I would say.
1: So let's talk about, all right, and we're going to come back to some of that stuff because we're going to talk about some potential solutions, but you, you start talking about ageism and I would love to have a a really meaningful conversation around that. I mean, I, I look at you, Susan, as someone who has seen it all from growing up with your grandfather and what you experienced. And it's really interesting. As I reflect on my grandparents, my grandmother was such a pivotal force in my life it was an amazing woman. And I remember her once saying to me, I was in high school and it didn't mean much, but I never forgot it and it means a lot to me now. And she is French. She was French and lived to be over 100. Wow. Um, but she said, yeah, but she said, I look at myself in the mirror, Michelle, and she had an accent and she said, and I say, Laurette, where have you gone? I, I feel the same inside, but I look at myself and sometimes I don't recognize myself. And, you know, fast forward to today, my mom, who's um, 85 now said just turned 85. It's shocking to me to think about my mom being 85. Um, And she said, you know, I said, Mom, I haven't seen you wear that ring in a long time. She had a beautiful ring on. She's like, you know, Michelle, I know my hands are ugly, I think they're ugly, but you know what they're really not? They're just old. So why am I not wearing you know rings on my 85 year- old hands, right? So I, I you know, this destigmatization of aging. I'd love to understand what that means to you, why and how it happens, even sometimes unintentionally. I mean, everyone arguably loves their grandmother. And their grandfather in in so many cases. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, the stigmas and stereotypes associated with aging are profound. And I think, you know, you can probably go into um, elementary school and talk to people about, um, you know, drawing pictures of somebody who's old. And they have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. And it's not typically anybody that has any vibrancy or what I would even say vitality, anything that looks like, I mean, they're hunched over, they've probably got an assistive device and and that sort of thing. So we've got views that really through childhood, um, seemingly our society has said, this is the picture of what happens as you grow older. Wow. And even if there is somebody In your life that might have given you a different picture it's like they're the outlier and that's it's my grandfather and I think it what happens is we other them they're those people and they need at some point you know their memories fail their bodies fail and they need a place and without obviously saying we're warehousing them I just think that you know, our beliefs mm-hmm. just say, well, they don't even know the difference. I've had more people yeah. say to me, especially when there's cognitive decline, someone living with dementia. Well, it doesn't matter. She doesn't know she's got a roommate. She doesn't know that she's in a room with three other people. And yes, it, those places still exist. And it's mm-hmm. how can we, how can we say that's any less a person? And so it's just the stigma associated well, but she's got dementia, so she doesn't know. Family members sometimes will say with somebody uh, with dementia, especially, they don't even know that I was there. So why should I keep coming to visit? Mm. Because she knew in the moment, but it's that stigma that just says, they don't know, they don't care, she won't remember, so it's not important. And these are all things that get perpetuated through society and again, through how we're funding uh, the system that is caring for those as we grow older. So I think, you know, stigmas are real. They're just part of kind of what we experience in society Our typically our cultures. There's a whole move for age-friendly communities, um, age-friendly health systems. We're not very age-friendly by any stretch. Um, be it the way we're able to kind of walk through our community, the sidewalks and, and such, um, the way things are positioned on shelves, it's not exactly age-friendly. And so as a society, it really requires us to think and to become aware of what, we're not bad people, it's just that somehow those ideas, those beliefs just get passed on and reinforced through what we
1: experience in our day-to-day living. Uh, so I am my. I, I read a lot. I'm an avid reader. One of the books that I've been reading. Well, I'm reading it a while, so now I'm just using it and applying it to my life. It's called Outlive. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Yeah. Um, Peter Atia. He wrote, I know the name. Yep. Okay. So mm-hmm. he writes all about, and he, it's amazing, right? He's like in his. I guess he's about 50 now, but the way that, you know, he goes through exercises and things, like if you look at his videos, they're meant for people that, you know, are elder or not. You know, he starts real basic and he's like, but this is what we all should be doing, right? But he talks about, and I never really thought about it like this before health span versus lifespan. And when we think about health span, it's about, You know, not not adding 10 more years to my life, but the quality of life. How great is that quality of life? So I would love if you could share for me with with everyone listening here. What are some of the, you know, most common, maybe biggest um, quality of life changes that you see in people in, let's call it, I don't know, the last decade of their life, right? I'm trying to think about elder. and, you know, what are some of the things that seem to impact them and, and how does it happen? You know, I, I'm, my dad is um, 89.
0: And as I've kind of watched him through the last decade, I think for me, what I see is the the loss of autonomy, the mm. ability for him to make his own decisions and to really defer To his wife who's about 10 years younger and really um, what do you think I should do partially because you know she has so interjected well you really can't have that or you really shouldn't be eating this and and really coming from a good place but it really has robbed him of being able to make decisions Mm. and it and even engage in what I like to call the dignity of risk taking that as one gets older make a bad choice once in a while to do something that might involve a chance that there will be an unfavorable outcome, but there's a chance that it might be actually something really beneficial. Take, for example, going outside to just by themselves to be able to experience the fresh air and, and get the sunshine to be able to move a little bit. Well, yeah, he might fall and yeah, he might wander off. There are some things that could happen but what is he gaining by being able to go out there? And he's been stripped of that ability to be able to make some of these choices. And that happens, I see it all the time. Um, I can tell you another example with my stepfather. We had round-the-clock caregiving because he wanted to stay in his home and that was my mother's request. Don't send him to a traditional nursing home. And we didn't have access to a greenhouse home. And the well-meaning, well-intended caregiver, he was a man who loved his salt and he would take the lid off the salt shaker and dip his celery in the salt shaker and and eat his celery (laughs) that way. Well, that she didn't think her, the caregiver did not think this is really a good thing for him. And so she took away the salt shaker Mm. and deprived him of a simple pleasure. Did he really care? that um, maybe she would ex- expand his, his lifespan, give him maybe another six months or a year by taking away the salt shaker. Oh, no, he would have says, if I die tomorrow, give me my salt shaker. I I want my <laughs> salt shaker. And I think there are often choices like that. And um, I think those are the important conversations to have. And um, every time I'm with my dad, it's like, what's important? What what would you like to do and, and what can we do? And he's still rather deferential. And so I think that's what we need to be thinking about is how we can really avoid that trap. And really I like the frame, uh, I've always called him Peter Atia, but I don't know if it's how you would say his last name, but nevertheless, I think it's health span, lifespan. How do we really put more quality of living in a health span as opposed to the quantity, the number of years. And I think there's almost this badge that says they live to be X number years. And it's like, well, how many of those years, especially at the end, were they living what they would call a quality of living experience?
1: Yes. Sure. I feel like I've been put in a very fortunate position because I, I, I you and I discussed this. A uh, few years ago, I was reached out to by a senior um, living conference called Smash, right, to speak to them about selling, right, because I have a sales effectiveness consultancy. But that put me on the path of really understanding, you know, my my parents and where they're coming from, and what's important to them and having the right conversations. Um, it, it's reminded me of another book I'm a book, big book reader, right? But um, Atul Gwande, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, because I I love his books. I mean, I bought some of his other books for people in our office, but being mortal, that Mm -hmm. changed my thinking and changed my approach to both my mom and my my dad. So um, my mom lives with me. She um, went through a period, now we've, we've, completely shifted everything. Right. But she went through a period of being really independent, her own car, making lunch for my children, doing a lot of things, you know, as an 80 year old woman Mm. and, you know, had uh, had a couple of misses during COVID as far as misdiagnosis. So long and short of it, I won't go through all that, but I will say that she had to learn how to walk again Mm. and was on a walker. And she is we've got her in occupational and physical therapy right now coming in the home. But she went through a period that even in my home, right? She has her own apartment there. She was feeling very isolated mm-hmm. because she wasn't getting out any longer. I run a business, you know, I was running it through a difficult. You can argue very difficult economic climate. And I travel a bit and my kids were getting a little older, more independent. And I had no idea what was happening right under my nose, right? Like right in my own house. And, um, you know, until it it kind of escalated into a bit of like a crisis for her. And the things that I learned though, through talking to people like you and reading that book, it helped me have a a good, honest conversation with her. So how do we like really begin to talk to our family members? Um, You know, I think about my dad who really doesn't want to talk much about it. He, all I said to him was, okay, I understand one thing you want to live at home till the last breath that you take, that's what we're going to make sure you can do. So he also works. So he's a very vibrant man, right? Retired fire department and still works there and, but, you know, has had some issues lately. I said to him, you want to live in your house, physical therapy, You want to live in your home, Got to go see your vascular guy, you know, and we're having those conversations. I'm also very direct, but I'm not telling them what to do but just saying, what do you want, right? Here are the things that I know that I can help you with to keep you in that situation. Um, not easy conversations to have, though, are they? No, they're, they're not easy conversations to have. And then it's
0: so to your, your question, or as you were talking about uh, your mom. Or, or your dad, I think it was that you were saying, trying to figure out what exactly they need to be safe. So you want to live here. Right. So right. what do we need to do? You need this, that, and the other kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it it is trying to figure out how you strike that balance, how you have that mm-hmm. conversation. Are you knowledgeable of the resources that are available? You're a bit of an educated consumer. I'm a, a bit of an educated consumer. We are both advocates for... Um, those that we're closest to, those that we love. And I will advocate to get all the supports. I actually have a sister-in-law who um, unfortunately had a fall and mm-hmm. fractured a couple vertebrae and you know needed to, she lives in a, a two-story townhouse and lives alone. And so how was she going to be getting up and down the steps? And so we were suggesting, well, maybe this would be a time to sell your townhouse and, and so forth and really listening and hearing what's important to her. She said, Mm -hmm. if I have to stay upstairs in my bedroom, she says, I want to be in my home. Now to the social isolation, those antennae are going up in me. It's like, yeah, I I hear that. And yet you need certainly to be surrounded with people and, and be able to go to the places that are important to you. So it's really kind of creating a comprehensive plan, but really having that voice um, be the be able to have that autonomy and that control. And that voice is the loudest voice saying, this is what is important to me. And then really try to understand, well, what are the resources we could bring in here and really approach it uh, the problem solving and let's figure out how we can put something together that will help you heal number one so that you'll be able to go up and down the steps again you're able to be in your own home connected to people in the interim while you're healing and so we really created a wonderful home healthcare plan so that they were able to um bring her the support that she needed and family you know we decided this is the time we all step up she's one of six in the family so and nieces and nephews and everything so we We figured out what does it look like and how do we step up to the plate as well. And some families are easier, easier said than done. In our case, it was easier. But I I want to be cognizant, you know, that our system and the infrastructure, there's a lot more that needs to be done to support people living in their own homes to address some of the things we're talking about. Let's be honest, but it's got to start with you know, having those honest conversations with the person that it really matters. And Atul Gawande certainly does it masterfully just as an aside. It's required reading for anybody that will be working in a greenhouse home because we
1: feel so strongly about that. Well, that's interesting because I think it's required reading for anyone. I mean, I, I think really young kids like mine, kids are, you know, in college, they, uh, aren't probably mature enough, but I think every one of our listeners should read that book. Totally. Um, the one thing it taught me, right, because there were multiple stories around this, even when he talked about his own personal story with his father. Oh, yeah. You know, remember that story? So I do. It was amazing. And it's like, really listen. And that's what I keenly tried, you know, I'm, I'm listening really hard to my mom and I'm listening really hard to my dad, right? So when um, my mother, I'll tell you an interesting story here, when my mom was, you know, suddenly, who likes to spend time with me, we played bananagrams, all these games, and um, she, she was declining, something was going on with her that appeared to be a little different. So I told you what happened during COVID, she had to, it would, ended up. She was uh, diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Never had it before, but had an immune response because it wasn't cared for, and other things were happening. Well, very recently, she had also. I'm like, over months, I'm like seeing a decline as she was getting better. She had a tumor removed that was, um, you know, creating a lot of gastrointestinal issues that she put up to old age. She. Had it removed, the doctor, the surgeon said she should. It was benign. And she's a different woman. Mm -hmm. Well, she's like a different woman in a good way, right? I'm like, Mom, you're not even using your walker. She said, I don't know how long this thing has been growing inside of me because I just, you know, and she just chalked it up to old age and didn't tell me. But what was happening is Mm -hmm. that I saw my mom pulling away from me not wanting to spend time with me, actually getting a little bristly as well. And I'm like, what is going on? So we had a a crisis where my mom fell and I couldn't get her up. She was sweating like it was a a very unusual thing. Well, little did we know this tumor had, had an impact on her. I don't know if it had burst, but something was happening. And so she told me the next day, she was crying. She said, "I felt like I was dying last night." You know, and we brought her to the hospital, figured out everything, and she said, "I'm just going to be straight with you." I'm like, please do. She didn't feel like she could be. So, this is what I mean about honest conversations and how do we make them happen? What she sees is a daughter who works really hard, has her own business, running a household. Um, now the mom's having issues, and she kept saying she wanted to move into senior living, and she doesn't really know what that looks like. Right? Mm-hmm. She said, the truth is, I don't want to go anywhere. But I'm dying. And I'm not going to put that burden on you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, my God, well, now let's talk about what you want. And what we can really do together to get there. But it took a really difficult crisis. Mm-hmm. For her. I mean, it was rough for her okay. to even feel like she could have the conversation with me. And I feel like, you know, that's one of the most difficult parts. You've got parents that have had careers have been independent, and suddenly something shifts. And it's, I think, shocking for them and shocking for the, the adult children as well. Um, it's just surprising, even though we all know, and we hear about it. There's just a way we think about our parents. So I don't know you know, what what we can do to continue to have those conversations. I will tell you that transparently people in my life that knew I was having this podcast. That was the number one question they had for you, which is how do we start to have great conversations that help us understand? Um, You said one thing read the book first, right? That's a good thing. For Sure. Yes. And, um, you know, because it can be hard to have those conversations.
0: I think the book really does give you a lot of context and really, for me, it was eye-opening, I, maybe because I'm a nurse, but I I felt that, oh, yes, there certainly I have this propensity, surgery at all costs, you know, let's do everything we can to keep people going the quantity of years in their life. And if I can give him another two years, yes, let's do the feeding tube or let's do this or that and the other, type of intervention and and even with um Dr. Gowande, you really felt it as he shared his personal story yeah he as a physician that's what he did was put more years back into a person's life and really was able to frame the conversation a bit differently he as the surgeon but also he as the son with yep. his father and so it was I think for all of us you know and I guess the other thing that I would say, don't wait till it's a crisis to have the conversation because none of us make good decisions and can have really meaningful, candid conversations when there's a crisis. Yes. So, really thinking about certainly advanced directives. I mean, there are lots of opportunities to start having the conversation and really not just so you get to sign the document. And I guess, check that box, that's done. Bye. But to really have, well, but what if this and what if that, and what would be important to you and really kind of create some scenarios to see how they might respond and yeah, just kind of problem solve and kind of make it a family thing and just, yeah, Yeah. for me and make it personal, you know. I should be thinking about this. And and in fact, I do. I mean, I talk to my kids all the time because I I think it's so fresh in my thinking about what we should be talking about and what's important to me as I grow older. And um, as it pertains to quality of life and, you know, don't take this from me. Yep. So those are, I, I think the sooner you have the conversations, avoid, having them at a time of crisis. I mean, obviously at a time of crisis, you're likely going to have to have some conversations if you haven't. Um, And, you know, it gets real then where it was more hypothetical, then it's suddenly real, it's there. But um, yeah, just kind of build that, build those opportunities where we should be having this
1: periodically. And Yep. I would completely agree with you. And, you know, it was interesting as my mom was, As we were debating on this surgery, which was actually very simple. Uh, We talked to the surgeon. It was creating a lot of pain. It was very big. And he's like, it's benign. I can get this thing out. Right. And that's what happened. But she did say to me and was very clear if it's anything other than close me up. If anything happens, do not let them resuscitate me. You know, like we're really clear on that stuff. And um, and I've had the same conversation with my dad which I think is wonderful because, you know, it it helps you. uh, Obviously, it's all emotional at the time, but it helps you understand and be very, very clear on this is what they really want. Right. Well, I
0: think the other thing that you said that I kind of want to go back to Mm. something you were saying about your mom, Um, she thought she was dying and she didn't want to be a burden. And yeah. so that's why she was thinking she would have to leave so that she wouldn't be a burden to you. Well, that made me
1: cry. Of of course. And yeah. so
0: I think, you know, those we have to I- acknowledge is that that's likely going yeah. to be for many of our parents. That's the reality. They, they do feel that way. I hear that all the time. I don't want to be a burden to you all. Even my siblings will say that to their kids. They said, I don't want to be, be a burden to you guys. So please just put me away somewhere. And, you know, it's really, let's let's kind of peel back the layers of that one and really kind of let's talk it through when you say not be a burden and really ask more curious questions to see what do you mean by that and, and really frame it in the context of quality of life. Do you really feel that your quality of living experiences you will be able to achieve them there. Not that maybe they can. And I know some wonderful senior living communities, but it sounds like your mom really did not have a picture of what (laughs) that might be or where that might be. So maybe it's exploring what those communities look like. So it's a more accurate picture. But when they say, I don't want to be a burden, then it feels to me that's something that you need to explore and really ask some of those questions not in a judgmental way, Um, but just let's unpack it. Let's talk a little bit more about that.
1: Hey, it's Michelle. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy our podcast and know someone who you believe would make a great guest, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let's talk. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, may it inspire you in your own personal and professional journey of life.